with that, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, what a great passage, and I pray that it will change your life this morning. Would you stand as we read God's word together? Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. As you know, they were messed up. They had a lot of problems, uh, but this is his third letter. It's called 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first letter, but in the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, he mentions a previous letter. So this would have been 3 Corinthians, but we don't have that letter. Anyway, that's all irrelevant. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, he says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. I pray that you would apply them to our heart today. And may they not only change our lives, but may they change the lives of those around us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 2007, uh, a country music singer named Brad Paisley wrote a letter to me. Now, I confess to the early service that I've never heard of Brad Paisley, and there were a gasp in the crowd. I, I don't listen to a lot of current music and, and not country music. I'm sorry, sorry, country music people. In 2014, Mercy Me, who is a Christian uh, group that I have heard of, they uh, recorded a song called Dear Younger Me. It was the same similar idea to Brad Paisley's um, letter to me, but uh, from a Christian point of view. In the 2014 Mercy Me song, Dear Younger Me, a few of the lyrics go like this. Every mountain, every valley, through each heartache you will see, every moment brings you closer to who you were meant to be, dear younger me. You are holy, you are righteous, you are one of the redeemed, set apart, a brand new heart, you are free indeed. It was the songwriter's intent to write a letter to himself as a young man. And if he could do that, what would he say? And so from that, he wrote the song. In fact, the writer's name is Bart Millard, uh, and he was speaking from a great deal of past pain because his father was very abusive to him when he was a child. But that caused me to think, if I could write a letter to myself as a young man, what would it be? Now, I realize it's kind of pointless in, in that respect because we can't go back in time. I can't send a letter through time. I don't know in my young foolishness if I would even listen to a letter that I wrote myself. I didn't listen to my father often. And dad was kind of doing this similar thing. He was trying to take what he had learned and instill it on me. That's what good parents do. And also this message that I wrote, write, wrote for today, I'm not expressively writing this for my children, but it would apply to, to them and to anybody who's young in their life. If you could write a letter to yourself, those of you who are middle-aged or senior adults, if you could write a letter to yourself when you were younger, what would you say in that letter? What would it be? Even though it's pointless for us to go back, it might help others who are struggling in the same way. And before I forget, one of the challenges I want to give you today is I encourage you to go home this week 
sit down and write a letter to your younger self. Now, again, you can't send it back in time, but it'd be interesting for you to read. It might be interesting for your family to read, something that they will want to keep always. So today and next Sunday, I will be pre preaching two, uh, a two-part message entitled, Dear Younger Me. Pretty simple. Dear Younger Me. Today's part one. So if I could go back in time and, and, and share with my younger self anything I want, and there are so many to choose from, so many lessons in life, what are the most important things that I would like to say? The first thing I think I would say to my younger self is this, life ain't easy. <laughs> Just that right there. Life ain't easy. Now, this, these are all biblical, right out of God's word, and, and this is coming right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Ecclesiastes is attributed to the wise man Solomon, one of the wisest men ever to live, and he was so smart that he ended up depressed. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, he says this, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Now what Solomon is saying here is it doesn't matter if you're fast or strong, wise or brilliant or educated or rich. Tough times happen to everybody. And I fear that in particularly this generation, that gets free college tuition <laughs> and so many things are handed to you. And I know you think you got it tough, young people. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, okay. <clears throat> you think you got it. If you think you got it tough, young people, mom and dad, if you want to help your children the most, and I've told you this before, get them on a jet. Take them to the Philippines, take them to India, take them to, to Africa, so, uh, so many countries in Africa and so many nations and continents in our world, South America. Let them see how the rest of the world lives and they'll find they, they don't have it as tough as they think they did. That was one way that I learned a little bit about life. Life isn't easy, but here Solomon is saying this. <clears throat> he said, even if you got the best of the best, Let's say you're the smartest guy around, which he was. Let's say you're the richest person around, which he was. Let's say you're, the, you're blessed and you can have anything you want, which he did. He had all these projects that he undertook. He built the, the temple. We call it the Temple of Solomon, but palaces and just all kinds of things. The guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines, basically 1,000 wives. Because he could have anything he wanted. And so he, he ended up with a thousand wives. I don't recommend that, but he had that. <clears throat> and in all of his excess and all that he had, he comes to this realization. Life is sometimes hard. It doesn't matter how smart you are, rich you are, how, how fast you are, how brilliant. Uh, bad things happen. Tough times happen to everybody. And his fate, ended up being the same as my fate and your fate will ultimately be. Young people living in your house, uh, excuse me, living in your parents' house is cheap. <clears throat> right now, high school is easy. You may not think it is, but it's easy. 
And playing Mario Kart is fun, but that ain't life. Life is hard sometimes. Sometimes you flunk out. You get fired. You develop allergies. And you can't pay your bills. Sometimes life is hard. Little Orphan Annie sang a song that said, It's a hard knock life for us. It's a hard knock life for us. Well, I would say to Andy, Annie, sometimes it's a hard knock life for all of us. I think Solomon would say that. Life isn't easy. And if you go through life thinking that everything is going to be handed to you, that everybody owes you, and it should be simple and easy, you're in for tremendous heartache and disappointment. Life ain't easy. The second thing I would say to my younger self is, <clears throat> let the past go. Let the past go. One of the greatest successes in life is learning this simple lesson. Not an easy lesson, but simple. I know I've shared it with you before in one respect or another, but we struggle with it. I struggle with it as well. Let the past go. In your job, you're not going to last very long unless you let the past go. Because things are going to happen at work. Problems and trials are going to come up and there are going to be disagreements and there will be times where you don't want to go to work because of that boss or that decision that they made. And you're just going to go from, excuse me, from job to job to job if you don't let the past go. In your marriage, you know a successful marriage, excuse me, just a second. Again, I was crystal clear <laughs> until I got up to, to speak. The song service, I sing like a canary. But now, no, uh, sometimes life ain't easy. That's the way it goes. <laughs> Let the past go. In, in your marriage, marriage is a relationship. And like any relationship, in every relationship you have with your kids, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, your boss, your teachers, whoever it is, Life is all about relationships, and in those relationships, you're going to self-destruct in every relationship unless you learn to let the past go. You work through things, you get over it, and you move on. If you let it pile up, they'll all self-destruct sooner or later. Now, I realize that some of the things that happened in your past are not your fault. Things happened to you because of the sins of others. In the lyrics to the song, Dear Younger Me, uh, the writer deals with that. One of the lines is, Dear Younger Me, it's not your fault. I assume he's talking about the abuse from his father. It is not your fault. You were never meant to carry this beyond the cross, dear younger me. And then he goes on to repeat, you are holy, you are righteous, you are one of the redeemed, set apart, a brand new heart, you are free indeed. Sometimes that's hard to believe, hard to accept, and hard to move on from. Those terrible things that happen to you are not your fault. Let it go and move forward. And even though you may not officially blame yourself, you still feel guilty and you struggle with that. That's what psychologists commonly say. That we feel guilty, we have to deal with the feelings of guilt for the sins of others imposed upon us. You have to let that go. 
Stop believing the lies that Satan gives you that you're to blame for every bad thing that's ever happened to you. Let it go. Now, understanding that, I know we can honestly say that some things, other things that happened to us in our past are entirely our fault. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, throughout our lives, much of our pain is self-inflicted. I know I've shared that with you before as well. Many of our wounds are self-inflicted wounds, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. We say things and do things that cause pain, pain for ourselves and pain for others. We are not just victims. We are also responsible for many of the bad things that happen in our life. But at some point, we have to release that too. We have to let it go. God does. If you've come to God with repentance, he has let it go. And when I say he's let it go, he's let it go. He's released it. He's forgotten it, the Bible says. He'll never bring it up again. He never judges you again by it. It's over once he has forgiven you. And because God forgives you, you need to forgive you. God moves forward in your life and you need to move forward in your life without all of that weight attached to you. That's why Christ died for you, to release you from the burden of that sin. Satan doesn't want you released. He wants you shackled. And even once God releases you, Satan wants to deceive you into thinking that you're still shackled by it. In Luke's gospel, he describes an interesting event in which Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. Do you remember that story? It's a great story. So he's invited to be the guest, the quote, guest of this Pharisee. The Pharisee's name is Simon. And <coughs> he walks in. Now, in the first century, in first century Israel, there were about three things that you did for everybody who came into your house if they were an honored guest. The first thing that you did when they walked in is that you gave them a kiss on the cheeks. That was like a good hearty Texas handshake of the first century. You shook their hand. And the way that you shook your hand, their hand in the first century is you gave them a, a kiss on the cheek. The second thing you did was you washed their feet or had somebody in your household wash their feet. One, it showed honor and humility before them. It, it treated them as an honored guest. I, and secondly, their feet were dirty because everybody wore sandals in the first century. And the third thing that you would do for a guest, especially if it were an honored guest, is you might anoint their head with oil. It was a sign of blessing conveyed upon them. So Jesus went as the guest of this Pharisee to his home. And this Pharisee, when Jesus walked in, this Pharisee didn't give him a kiss. He didn't wash his feet. And he gave him no anointing. No blessing, nothing. It was a way of treating somebody with contempt. Invited him to his house, and I think it was a, supposed to be an ambush. There were other Pharisees there as well. So they didn't think very highly of Jesus. So they pretended they were friends by inviting him over for dinner. And then they treated him like that. Well, there was a woman in the area who apparently was, I, it's, the Bible says she had lived an ungodly life or an immoral life. We think she was probably a prostitute or someone who had lived a life of adultery, uh, something like that. And so she comes in, she finds out that Jesus is there at, at this Pharisee's house and God had been convicting her. And that's the way Spirit God does, is it not? It's odd, the timing. 
But she had fallen under conviction for the life that she had, and God had really brought her to her knees, just convicted her of, of the sin that was in her life, and she wanted to get right with God. She heard that Jesus was going to be at this house, so she went to this house, I'm sure to the shock of the Pharisees. She comes in, and she immediately grows straight for the feet of Jesus. Not the other, not the Pharisees, but Jesus. She cries pro prolifically all over his feet, not just a little tear or two in a pretend kind of, kind of way. I mean, she's just pouring it out. She, she cries so much, she actually is able to use her tears to clean his feet and wipes them with her hair. But she doesn't stop there. She anoints his feet with perfume, something that was very expensive at the time. And so she, she anoints him, the anointing that the Pharisees did not give him. But she doesn't stop there. She kisses his feet repeatedly. Now, if you find that odd that she would kiss his feet, you better get used to it because I guarantee we're going to kiss the same feet in heaven. I look forward to that. And after she does this, or when she does this, the Pharisees, they're ticked off. They're belligerent. I think they're mad because they didn't get their feet washed. Nobody kissed their feet and wiped them with their hair. But they're all self-righteous, you know, they're super righteous. And so they're, they're unhappy with that. And so Jesus turns to them and gives them an interesting response. This is Luke chapter 7, verse 44. He says this, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, let me tell you, as we read that story <clears throat> or recount that story, it'd be a little bit different for the woman recounting that story because she comes to this moment or the passage comes to this moment where Jesus turns to her and he addresses her directly. Instead of talking about her to the Pharisees, he looks her in the eye and he says something to her. And she's been waiting for a long time to hear this from her Savior. She's been longing for this moment. Cut to the quick in conviction. And she hears those words she longs to hear. Woman, I forgive you. It is the same thing that Christ offers you through the cross. It's his way of looking in your eye and saying, I forgive you. I want you to know if you've come to faith in Christ, God has forgiven everything you've ever done or said or thought. 
every misdeed, every mistake, every stupid moment in your life where you did something that defies all logic and moral sense in God's eyes, God has forgiven you through Christ. And if he forgives you, you need to forgive you. You need to let it go. Jesus has power to forgive you, and he will if you'll come to him with repentance like that woman did. The third thing I would say to myself is stop being afraid. Now, I know I've shared this with you and I talk about fear because the Bible talks about fear so much. I say that to me, I would write, I would literally write that in a letter to me because I was afraid all the time. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 9 says it this way, a beautiful passage. This is God speaking through Isaiah. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So he's saying through Isaiah, don't be afraid. <clears throat> now I realize it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to believe it. I grew up afraid. I was an introverted kid and I was scared of everybody and everything all the time. As a kid, as a kid, the only thing I really wasn't afraid of was girls. But then in sixth grade, I became terrified of them too. <laughs> but because of God, I realize now my fear was completely unnecessary. It was a colossal waste of time. How much of our time, our thoughts are wasted being afraid of something that God has complete control over. We've been studying the life of David on our Wednesday night uh, services. I encourage you to come. We're right in the middle of just a really good passage. This week, he met his wife, Abigail. Now, I don't know how you met your wife, men. I'm assuming it was a little different. First of all, Abigail was married to another man. I don't recommend meeting them that way. But... Um, and then he died uh, a terrible death. The husband did. He was, he was a horrible man, by the way. One, one of the worst in the Bible. One of the worst. He was just sorry. He was greedy and selfish and mean. You just can't say enough bad things about her husband. But Abigail was exactly the opposite. The Bible says she was beautiful and intelligent. In fact, she saves the lives of all of her family, all of her children, her whole household because of her. Um, <clears throat> but she does this. So here's what happened. David had, had given this guy a favor. He, he'd, he'd done this guy solid. He, he and his men had protected the, the flocks around this guy and the shepherds around this guy when he was there previously. So they go back through and they're hungry. Fortunately, it's harvest time and everybody's having big festivals and this guy was filthy rich. He had a huge festival. And so David just kind of said, he sent his guys and said, hey, could we come to dinner? Can we join in your festival because we're pretty hungry? And the guy just insulted David and mocked them and sent them away. So they came and told David. David said, well, those are fighting words. And he puts on his sword, the sword of Goliath, and has all of his men arm up. And right then and there, as he has done this, Abigail shows up, the wife of this awful man. Now, God has, and by the way, this is the sovereignty of God. 
God has already preempted David's stupidity. <laughs> I love it when God intervenes and stops us from doing something stupid. And usually he sends a woman to tell us. <laughs> and so that's exactly what happened. He's about to go in there and slaughter everyone. In fact, he said, as surely as the Lord lives, when this day is over, not one of his kids will be alive. All the men, he said, all the men, we're going to slaughter them all. Which means Abigail's sons were all going to die as well. So servants came to Abigail and said, oh, David's men came to, to, to your husband and, and they told him, uh, uh, hey, can we have some dinner? Can we come to dinner? And he insulted them and sent them away. And now we're, we're afraid that they're going to come and kill us. And they were right. That was about to happen. They were all going to be slaughtered. And they said, you know, your husband's really stupid. And he did this thing. So we came to you. <clears throat> now, man, people shouldn't have to go to your wife to get you to do something right. Okay. All right. Enough. That's another sermon. So she, she loads up the donkeys with tons of bread and meat and all the goodies, all the trimmings, and she, she packs it out and, and takes the food to his men. And so David, at his hottest moment, when he's furious and he's strapping on the sword and says, let's go get them, and they turn around, and as just as they move in, here Abigail shows up. And she has this beautiful conversation with him. And basically she says, David, you don't want to do this. <clears throat> She calls him master, I think, 17 times in this, in this speech. Beautiful speech, brilliant. She also calls him king. Now, David's not king yet. Saul's still the king. He's running from Saul. And he spends so much of his time being afraid, living in fear. How much time do you actually spend being afraid, afraid of the government, afraid of the future, afraid of what's going to happen, or afraid of a neighbor, afraid of... Afraid of something all the time. We spend so much time in fear. And David did the same thing. We know that because he wrote Psalms during this time. And in the Psalms, he talks about being afraid, being afraid, being afraid, being afraid, and asking God to come in, can come and help him. Now, I think <clears throat> if David could go back and write a letter to his younger self, he would say in that letter, why are you so afraid all the time? You were, de you were destined to be king. So Abigail, she gets it. She goes to him and says, hey, David, you're the anointed one. You're, you're going to be king. And all of your enemies that you're worried about right now, God will take care of them. You don't have to do it. Even referring to her own husband, she said, God will take care of you. Why are you? And by the way, God did take care of him. She went back and told her husband, hey, by the way, because of your dumb act uh, of meanness, uh, David and his men, his army was going to come wipe every one of us out. You know what happened? He had a heart attack right there, died 10 days later. That was the end of him. And as a result, as soon as David got the message, he sent his men to, to Abigail and said, hey, he wants, uh, wants to know if you'll marry him. She said, okay. And then they got married. <laughs> How about that? So, but while she's talking to David, she's saying to him, you're the guy. God has, has, has his hand on your life. God has already told you you're gonna be the king. Why are you stressing? Why are you taking matters into your own hand? God will take, don't let this be a scar on your whole life in ministry as king. Because it will be if you do this terrible thing. David comes to his senses while she's talking and his eyes are open and he goes, oh my gosh, I was about to do this horrible thing. Thank goodness you showed up. But he was afraid. And often we are the same. 
Of course, it's one thing to conclude that you shouldn't be afraid and another thing to actually not be afraid. When I was a little boy, afraid of the dark or afraid of the boogeyman that's in my closet at night, we had this closet in my room and I was pretty sure the boogeyman was in there. Dad would come in, and by the way, there's a joke I heard this week, it's a Chuck Norris joke. You know, we always talk about how tough Chuck Norris is and the the joke is when the boogeyman goes to bed at night, he checks his closet for Chuck Norris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my dad could come in and say, the boogeyman's not in your closet, son. And my fear is irrational. I'd never seen the boogeyman in my closet. I had no reason to think he was in there or a monster was in there, but I still thought that for some reason. And dad was being rational when he said, son, there's nothing in your closet. There's nothing. There's nobody under your bed. There's no reason for you to be afraid of the dark. And I listened to my dad saying that, but I didn't believe a word of it. You know, just accepting that is hard. And so that's why God keeps saying it over and over again through all of his angels and his messengers, time and time again, and his prophets, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. I will protect you. I will be with you. And we go, okay, I believe that. Theologically, I believe that. But here, it's hard for us to accept. There is no reason for us to fear. I don't care what the doctor says to you in that prognosis. And God, don't be afraid. I don't care who's in charge in Washington, D.C. God is sovereign. There's no reason for us to be afraid. Agree, disagree, I get that. Fear, nope. God's in control. Got to take care of it. Don't waste your life being afraid. Number four, I would say to my younger self, and I'll close with this, always remember God's call on your life. Now, of course, I just spoke of David, and David himself struggled with that idea that he knew he had been called, he knew he had been chosen, anointed, but still... Accepting that here was another matter altogether. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that famous passage, Paul speaking to the church in Rome and you and I, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called, there's the word, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also, here's the word, called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God has a calling on your life. Now, for some of you, it is a vocational calling. For some of you, it is not. It is something else. But God has a purpose for you being here. He made you for a reason. He wasn't bored He wasn't just winging it. He made you and me for a purpose. He has called us to something very important. I'm very concerned for this world. You know, and I know every preacher in every generation says things are really bad. I saw a sermon on YouTube from Billy Graham back in the 1960s, and he shared the same thing about our society uh, just going downhill and and, uh, things have really gotten bad. Let me tell you, just in a single generation, just in the last 20 years, it's shocking what is going on in our world right now, morally speaking. In God's eyes, what, what complete disdain they have for him, bitterness and hatred toward God and God's people. 
not to mention all the immorality that is in our world. Just my parents, just one generation back. I'm not talking about back in Abe Lincoln's day or in the day of Christ. I mean, just my parents. If my parents were alive right now and they came here to 2022 and they watched the world news with me just one night on one of those liberal channels, they would be shocked and stunned. And let me tell you, this world needs... God. Somebody got to tell him. Somebody needs to tell him. Fortunately, God has a plan. You. <laughs> You're the plan. You and me. God has a call on our life. And he says, those he predestined, that's us. He also called, that's us. And those he called, he also justified, that's us. God's calling is on our life. Now, David knew that, but accepting that is another matter. God, you know, I, I, my childhood and my teenage years were a struggle. I, I, there's no question. I, I really struggled. I didn't know who I was and, you know, just all kinds of insecurities. My life was basically a, a, a fear-based life, not a beer-faced, a fear-based <laughs> life. I want to get that wrong. But when I was 17, God called me to be a pastor. I can't explain that. It took a, a, a few months as God's calling became more and more certain in my life. And I don't know why to this day, my father was not a pastor. He was a barber. My grandfather was a barber. Uh, uh, why God would call me to be a pastor, nobody else got it either. I was an introvert. And introverts don't become pastors. You don't, you don't get up in front of hundreds of people every week if you're an introvert. It, the very thought terrified me. But that's what he did. And I, I knew that here... I made that calling public. I told my mom, I told my youth pastor, and then I told my church, did what it was supposed to do. I don't think they or me really accepted that. Uh, it, it, you know, here, it took a long time. It's the same with David. It took him a long time. And it may be you're in a process right now where God's call is on your life. You're just having a little trouble absorbing that, really thinking that God would call you. Listen, it may be vocational. We have had missionaries from this congregation go to the other side of the world and live there for the glory of God. God needs more missionaries. We've had people from men from this congregation become pastors. God needs pastors. It's not a popular thing anymore, by the way. Our churches need pastors as churches are struggling in our world and in our nation. And God's call may well be in their life to do that. But if not, God has a purpose for you. Amy Carmichael lived from 1867 to 1951. Perhaps not many people thought that Amy Carmichael had much of a chance of ever becoming a missionary. She suffered from serious physical problems and she was often weak and in pain so great that she was confined to her bed for weeks at a time. But Amy knew that God had called her to do mission work in light of her physical pain. She fought through the pain and went anyway. With the encouragement of a few close friends and family, she did go. And in India, she found her life calling and spent the remaining 55 years of her life serving, sharing the gospel of Christ in India. Never went home, by the way, not one time. She didn't take a sabbatical. She didn't take a weekend off. She didn't take a month off to go back home. She stayed in India for the rest of her life. What a powerful 
powerful ministry she had. Her life was dedicated to ending child prostitution and giving a home and a future to India's many orphans. Amy was also a prolific author, and her many books have encouraged and inspired so many thousands throughout the years. Eric Little was a successful athlete, but fame and honor did not sway him from what he knew was his life's calling from God to preach the gospel in China. Eric was born in China to missionary parents. He attended school in London where he trained and became known for his athletic abilities. In fact, he went on to compete in the Olympics, but remained true to his convictions. In 1925, Eric returned to China and used his skills to minister and influence many young Chinese to faith in Jesus Christ. He was captured by the Japanese in World War II and developed a brain tumor, as it was said, while he was in that prison camp and he died. But his final words before he died, his last words in this life was, it's complete surrender. He knew what it was to be called, and he knew what it was to surrender himself to that calling. What I would want to say to my younger self is, God's call is not a hypothetical. It's not wishful thinking. It's not something that just happens to somewhere else, someplace, uh, sometime else, or to someone else. That God's call is not something to dread or ignore. God's call in your life is real. It is verifiable. It is biblical and essential to our life. It is compelling, irresistible, and the greatest privilege of your life. Don't miss it. Don't deny it. Don't resist it. Embrace it. Pursue it. Rejoice in it. For it is how God will work in your life to change this world. Now, I begin with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, which says this. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. This passage means that God sees all of our challenges and gives us comfort. But that's not the end. That's a means to an end, that God comforts us. He consoles us. He helps us. He encourages us so that we can take that comfort, that consolation, and that encouragement and give it to other people. There's a purpose for that. Use what God does in your life to help others. We learn from God. It affects us. It helps us. And we, in turn, can comfort and help others. So so to my younger self and to all of you, life isn't always easy. Let go of the past. Stop living in fear. And remember, God is calling. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today and I pray that you would help us right now to be honest before you. And some of us have never gotten over our past whether something inflicted on us or some things that we said or did that somehow just defined us at the time and we never let it go. 
Even though you've forgiven, we, we can't get past it. So, Father, we ask and pray in the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, that you would heal us from our past so that we can move forward. Father, I pray that we be honest with ourselves and that we spend way too much time and energy and thoughts being afraid. Fear dominates this world. It's a dark place and people are afraid of the dark. We think about it. What's going to happen here? And who's in charge there? And why is this happening over here? And who's going to stop this injustice over there? And we are so, uh, so submerged in the fear of this world that it just consumes us. And while we should be concerned, Father, your word tells us to fear not because we are in the hands of a sovereign God, absolutely in control of all things and all times. You set up David and Abigail at just the right moment. Had she arrived 10 minutes later, it would have been too late. Or she went 10 miles away looking for him, it would have been the wrong place and everyone would have died. But you set it up perfectly, the right place at the right moment. Because you are sovereign. You can do whatever you want to do. And in our life, the right place at the right moment, you have a purpose and a calling for us. And we don't have to be afraid because our God is in control. But a part of that control, Father, is that we need to submit to your calling. For some here today, it may be to be a, a pastor, a music minister, a children's minister. It may be to be a missionary here locally in Azel or here in the United States as a home missionary or it may be in the furthest reaches of the world. Your calling is on our life. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning? Do you live in fear? Do you have trouble letting go of the past? Have you seized the calling of God in your life? Now's the time. Today's the day. Don't live with that fear anymore. Don't struggle with that unforgiveness anymore. Don't deny your calling anymore. Right here, right now, you give that to God. Would you stand? No one's looking around and everybody's praying. This invitation is for you. Maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray about that calling or what God is doing in your life or the life of those that you love. It may be you need to let go of the past and say, God, I just give it to you. Or God has called you or your family to minister in Hazel here in this place and you want to come and join the church. Just come down and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. Or maybe you want to take that first step. If you're not a believer in Christ, you want to surrender your life to Christ. I want you to know Jesus will forgive you completely and call you to a life of meaning. But you have to surrender to him. You have to receive that gift. Will you be willing to do that? Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ. If God is speaking right now, as we pray, you come.